0: everybody welcome back to the consummate athlete podcast i'm molly herford and i spend most of my time writing talking or adventuring in the great outdoors
1: and i'm peter glassford i'm a registered kinesiologist and an endurance coach and you are on the consummate athlete podcast where we talk about all things movement-related, uh, which is, again, right up my alley as a kinesiologist. And what we try and do is sort of pull out, you know, training concepts or strategies for sort of navigating life and, and having movement sort of intertwined in our life uh, to enrich that. And so we've talked to all sorts of high-end athletes and coaches and, and several sort of consummate athletes who do lots of different sports and, and even just regular people like you or I who, who are trying to learn about that.
0: I I wouldn't count you as a regular person, dear. No, no. (laughs) Uh, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. So what have we been up to this week? This is like the first time in a really long time where we've actually been in one place, not at a camp for the entirety of the week.
1: Yeah, it's been good. It's been back. You know, I talk a lot about consistency and frequency is sort of, I guess, quickly becoming if it wasn't already sort of my thing that I talk about. Um, and so it's been nice to sort of take that and sort of just, you know, consistent sleep, consistent, you know, food at home cooked, you know, consistent routine, consistent training um, within sort of Ontario's spring. So we've been getting, we had snow and sub zero, like a couple of really cold days. Uh, so I've been riding inside. We've done some runs. We debated going to the pool. We did not go to the pool, but we went walking. Uh, been doing lots of and stuff at home. We haven't actually made it to the gym, but Uh, sort of our daily core routine's been in there. So, yeah, we've been sort of routinized.
0: I made it to the gym yesterday because I helped teach a... Oh, you've
1: been yogain?
0: Yeah, I taught a couple yoga classes yesterday for the young women at Active Life in Collingwood, which was pretty fun. But I actually had a bit of an epiphany yesterday. My... I filled out my normal training log and my coach, David Roche, who was on the podcast last month, uh, commented back on it just like, wow, I'm so impressed with how these last couple weeks have gone for you. You've like come so far. And it was just like, oh, right. That's because I've actually been home sleeping like a normal person, not having any full travel days and actually being able to do the training that he wants like has wanted me to be doing for the last several months uh so it was definitely a little bit of a a kick in the butt where it's like oh wow i've gotten to be in all these cool warm places and you know have all of these great experiences over the last few months but it turns out being just home even with imperfect weather conditions and stuff has been better for my training than being in some of the better climates
1: well and for you too the looking back i guess you know even you could listen to episodes from January and February, maybe even before too. I'm not sure where you were struggling with your knee hurting and back and forth with training. And then eventually you sort of committed to, you know, taking it slow and doing some run walks. And you put in like a solid probably month and a half of those run walks. I would think. Was it that much?
0: Yeah, probably. And a
1: bit of cross training, which conveniently I mean, a lot of cross training (laughs) fit fit into your life. and, And luckily you could ride, um, but just sort of that, you know, at the time it would have seemed like you were never going to get better, right? And then four months later, three months later, you know, you just still feel it sometimes and it's it's there a little bit, but, you know, it, you did get over it, but it took sort of that going back to zero in some ways, at least in your head, right?
0: Yeah, and I mean, I'm not going to say I'm over it. Like, I, I sincerely believe the annoying thing with runner's knee and like knee issues is It's very hard to ever completely get them to go away when you're still running, like without taking like months and months and months completely off.
1: Well, I think with any of that pain, right? It's it's very hard because it's so multifactorial. Like you're gonna also have just hesitancies around that, and Mm -hmm. it'll take a while, right? But I mean, three months out, you know, you're in a much different state,
0: definitely. And
1: again, if you continue to progress gradually and consistently over time.
0: Yes, those have always been my watchwords.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's it's tough right because sometimes we like want to be healed and like all the way out, right, but sometimes that's not possible. and mm-hmm. that's it's good to accept that on some level that like great improvements like you went from not being able to do anything, right? So would you have taken ninety percent improvement, right? And is that you're still very highly functional?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, honestly, I I credit the last couple of weeks is just like not having been in a car or on a plane, just like crammed in that seat for hours and hours. And I feel like despite having all these great opportunities to train the last few months, I've also had a lot of travel days. And I think every travel day set me back exponentially. So Mm -hmm. I think even like, yeah, even two weeks of not having to be driving around and stuff has done a lot of good and just consistent sleep and stuff has been really huge.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely.
0: So, yeah, it's just kind of a good testament, I guess, to what like, oh, this is what like a good routine can do for you. And I, before having any kind of injury, I never really would have put much stock in a good routine or the ability to be super routine with stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I think, you know, today we have Matt Fitzgerald
0: yeah for the fourth time fourth i think time,
1: he's leading maybe the charge yeah. on, on recurring guests um and and it, this is a different book for him though right because it's a what would this be a memoir so a nonfiction. yes but it, all his books are nonfiction. yes so but previously like very sciencey or like very training oriented right like run faster is one that he co-authored that I, I really always come back to but like how to you know brain training
0: brain training for runners yeah. is him he how bad has... do you want
1: it like very like sciencey books and really good books that yeah. read well
0: yeah uh racing weight and the endurance diet are two of my absolute favorite books on nutrition um iron war is one of my all-time favorite books period um about sort of the battles between uh, yeah. mark allen and dave scott
1: yeah and it's a great narrative right? oh, like that it one almost, is amazing to me it almost reads like a fictional book mm-hmm. um because the stories and the characters are so rich, right? So, this book, though, is a memoir. So, it, he's the character. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, it goes through like it's, it's a running book. It's about running, but there's a lot of life's happenings that go on. In
0: it. Yeah. And I mean, I guess since we're on the topic of injuries, we'll point out like Matt's come on and Matt has said multiple times, like, he's one of the most injury prone runners and i mean we can debate all of the reasons why i think we can argue like he would say part of it is because he loves running so much that he'll push to get back to it arguably before it's necessarily super smart to, um but he you know a lot of the book does deal with that i mean a lot of it is much more on the personal side of things uh his wife suffers from bipolar disorder and You know a lot of the book is sort of talking through their relationship and the ups and downs and you know how they've kind of managed to make it to this point where everything seems to be you know going really well for them and they've really figured stuff out and it kind of culminates in this eight marathons and eight weeks crazy cross-country trip that matt does with his wife and the stories from it are just fascinating the people he meets all these adorable little moments where runners are telling him all these stories about what got them into running or how they met their partner through running or how they've made new friends and all of this stuff is just so heartwarming and lovely. I really I really enjoyed the book. It's called Life is a Marathon. The book is fantastic. I, I actually sat down and read it in a day. I was you so did, into you did,
1: it. I mean, it's not irregular for you to crush books, but you certainly crushed that book. Um, and I think it's, you know, it gets to the the concept of your knee, you know, we're talking about your knee and like, life's not always super sunny, right? And I think it's hard, I'm not going to go on to the social media tangent, but in this day and age in life in general it's easy to look at someone else and think oh their life's amazing right like
0: i feel like you can't start with in this day and age after you said you're not going to go on a <laughs> i'm tangent. not going to do
1: it but in the good old days yeah. in my day um <laughs> right and it, it's easy to say like oh we're just talking about cycling and, and i think you and i try and you know stay on that you know stay in our lane and we're not psychologists we're not you know there, there is bad stuff in life right but i mean i don't think anyone needs to hear necessarily more about that Um, but I think sometimes it's, it's, there's utility in, in seeing, oh, okay. Like Molly's a great runner, but, but she had to go back and like almost treat herself like a beginner and run walks are okay, even for advanced people. Um, but you know, there's struggle. We all have struggle, right? We all have health concerns. We all have family that, you know, (laughs) sometimes gets on our nerves or whatever, and not not the family members that listen to this episode.
0: Definitely not them. I, I They're love, great.
1: My youngest brother is a fantastic young man. Um, I don't know where you were going with that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyhow, the but in this episode, I think what you're going to get is like some running takeaways. How you know? How do you run? eight marathons and that seems like a very dense schedule of racing with travel with 10,000 miles but I think also there's the the real real stories of like their marriage right which is just reality right like few of us are going to make it through life without you know huge struggles huge downs right and, and I think you know Matt's a very successful priest is one of the couple authors and and you know professionals that you really look up to mm-hmm. right and i think for you to read this because it's probably why you crushed it so quickly is that it's like wow like this is a whole new level that you didn't even know about matt
0: yeah yeah and it's really interesting even talking about sort of his writing over the years you know he's managed to put out so many books and so many articles i mean he makes my the amount of writing i do look almost tame by comparison He's so prolific. So to kind of get this backstory and see sort of what his last few years have looked like, you're just like, holy crap, how, did, how has he managed to do all of this and, you know, stay highly functional as a person? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of amazing. And honestly, he doesn't really know how he's done it either. Cause I, I do ask him how he's written so much and still managing to run eight marathons in eight weeks because I don't think many people can run eight marathons in eight weeks. And his fastest one was the last one. Hmm. That's the. Well, you empty
1: the tank, I guess, right? But... Yeah,
0: and that one had the biggest drive too. They pretty much crossed the country for that last one.
1: Was it back to Boston? Was that how they ended? No, it?
0: they that was midway because they started in California, made their way to the East Coast, went oh, back through Chicago, course, and right. then ended in I believe it's Eugene, Oregon. So that was a I think th- almost three thousand mile drive in like blizzard conditions and sure. some of it and we also talk a little bit about how to uh, handle that kind of trip with your spouse because the amount of patience on the part of Matt's wife is honestly mind- mind-blowing to me because if Peter decided we were gonna get in a car and do eight marathons in eight weeks I, I don't know I'd probably be on the side of the road after the first one hitchhiking my way home because I don't think I could handle that. <laughs> oh, also, Matt likes sardines, just like Peter does. So I feel like maybe the two of you guys should just go on a road trip together. That would that would probably be better for everyone.
1: Could, could be. Could be.
0: Anyway, I love this episode. I really like this book. I highly recommend everybody pick it up. It's such a good read, especially if you've been a fan of Matt's work for a long time like I have. So yeah, without further ado, my interview with Matt Fitzgerald readers who know you as the guy who wrote racing weight and the endurance diet and brain brain training for runners can you give them sort of a, a 30 second elevator pitch of what this book is about because it's a it's a departure yeah. <laughs> for those people who know you from those much more clinical basic textbooky type things which were also i love but very different
2: yeah. i mean it,
3: it it's essentially the story of my journey as a runner. Um, But I present it as an example of the transformative power of testing your mental and physical limits as an endurance athlete. You know, the way I sort of interpret my own journey through life is that I was born kind of lacking the strength that everyone needs to, to live well, you know, life, you know, the title is Life is a Marathon, and, and the idea behind that cliche is, that life is long and hard. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, know, all, all, you know, life is, guess, there, there are no easy lives. Like, if your life is easy, easy today, it won't be tomorrow, you know, guaranteed. And we all, we all face different struggles, but we all face struggles. And, and I just feel, you know, one thing that my journey has taught me is that you need to be strong. Uh, to live a good life, it's as simple as that. To be a happy person, you have to be. You can't count on things just always going away. They won't. Um, and I discovered as a as a high school runner growing up in New Hampshire that I, I was not mentally strong. Um, so that sort of, I, I had this um, intense aversion to the, the pain of racing. Mm-hmm. Um, and though I had some talent as a runner and I had experienced some success, um, I ended up doing some shameful things. The the book opens with me failing to show up to the start line of an important uh, outdoor track race in my junior year of high school. Oh yeah, my god! I loved that
0: anecdote. Sense. By the way, I was just picturing it so beautifully. <laughs> should I? Should yeah, well, I, I? I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna come. Like.
3: <laughs> so good. So, I mean, you know, that 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 really um, I was deeply disappointed in myself. You know, I just saw that. I saw myself as a coward. And then, so I ended up quitting running fast forward a number of years and I ended up facing a much bigger test than, uh, you know, the, the suffering one has to experience, uh, to, to race well. Um, which is that my, my wife, uh, Nataki, uh, developed bipolar disorder, um, which is, you know, it had life or death stakes, you know, mm-hmm. it was, um, it, you know, as anyone who's been touched by the disease knows, um, it's, it's serious stuff. And as a couple, we went through, you know, a good full 10 years of really hard times. Not, not every day was terrible, but I mean, uh, the, the terrible days were as terrible as you can possibly imagine. And having read the book, you, you know, I mean, it was, we experienced, um, you know, just, uh, Really intense trauma together. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, so, you know, throughout that time, I had also come back to running and then gotten into triathlon. And I felt that, and I was on this journey to sort of find the strength that I had lacked as a young athlete just for the sake of becoming a person I could respect. But what I discovered was that that journey, which seemed like just a private internal journey, actually helped prepare me to be the husband and caregiver that Mitaki needed to be. Um, so it's almost like, you know, fate sort of worked it out that way. You know, just looking back on it, that's the way it seems.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but, um, yeah, so the, you know, the, the book, is, you know, it may sound like two books in one because it, it's, it's really the story of a marriage and it's also the story of my journey as a runner, but for me, they're, they're completely inextricable. Um, And woven in there are also uh, stories I collected um, uh, during an eight day, uh, eight week uh, cross country journey that I took with the Taki sort of after we'd come out the other side um, and, you know, found kind of a happy equilibrium. Um, And it was sort of, that trip was sort of an exploration and an opportunity for me to explore you know, what I call the magic of the marathon, which is this amazing transformative power that testing your limits as an endurance athlete, uh, has, um, all of that packed into the book. That was, that that wasn't 30 seconds. I know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a pretty long book, so that's, it's understandable that it took more than 30 seconds. Um, so when
3: you guys, (laughs) yeah, you're going to
0: have to work on that elevator pitch, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> um, so, when you started out on the eight marathon cross country trip, did you know that this was the book you were going to write?
3: I did. Um, yeah. Um, you know, as I've been telling people in other interviews, since the the day I met Nataki on a, a blind date in 1997, uh, she's 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 sort of been my muse. Like I, I. Uh, something about her and our relationship inspires me to write, so a lot of the stuff that 's in the book I was documenting um, in mm-hmm. real time almost
2: mm-hmm. like
3: that uh, the the scene where Nataki the, the really i think poignant scene where Nataki meets my dying grandmother uh, on on the you know, first time I took her back to New Hampshire I wrote about that the next day um, mm-hmm. so I would always sort of wanted to tell our story, but our, you know, when, when the talkie was diagnosed, our story just became something else entirely, you know? What I
2: mean? Yeah. Um,
3: at first I looked at it as uh, like the ultimate uh, opposite to Tract kind of story. But, mm-hmm. you know, then, you know, just, you know, the, per- the proverbial shit hit the fan. And, you know, I-, I wasn't going to share any of that stuff publicly until we kind of had a happy ending. And then you know when we came out the other side of it, uh, you know ideas just come to you in the most mysterious ways. But um, the last thing I expected was to tell our story sort of as a running book. Um, but it just seemed authentic to me because it really built on as obviously everything I've done before. That is the thing that it has in common with raising weight and everything else is that mm-hmm. um, there's a there's a great uh, Buddhist expression I like which is the farmer points the way with a radish. And what what that expression really means is that everyone's philosophy of life is grounded in
2: their daily
3: life. You know, so, you know, I, I am an, an endurance athlete. It's just a huge part of my identity. It's a huge part. It really is my, it, it, it's sort of like, you know, training and racing are sort of sacraments for me. Um, so it, it, it's no surprise that, you know, I, I sort of look at my life through that lens, you know, the, the lens uh, of an athlete. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of uh, kind of unexpected the way it came together, but um, that's the way it came together. Yeah.
0: And I was wondering, because, I mean, you came out with How Bad Do You Want It just a few years ago. So did that kind of spark some of these things? Because to me, like, the first scene where, you know, you do kind of skip out on that race... Like, that reminds me a lot of How Bad Do You Want It? Because clearly the answer yeah. then is not bad enough, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I'm the same person. So, you know, anyone <laughs> anyone who cared to, like, and I'm not recommending this, anyone who cared to look back at everything I've, I've published uh, would see, you know, a certain continuity, you know. Um, obviously, there's some evolution, but... You know, um, you know, uh, the psychologists refer to it as narrativizing, you know, where you sort of, you see your own life as a story. Um, and there's also, you know, mythologizing can get mixed up in there where you just, you make sense of your life by just not looking at it as an arbitrary sequence of events, but as, you know, a coherent story. And as a writer, I do a lot of that, um. And again, because I spend a huge part of every day running and you know chasing my limits uh, as an athlete um, that you know that is my story you know, mm-hmm. I, I, can't, I can't really tell my story without uh you know you know, without that endurance theme
0: yeah, I was actually really surprised honestly, reading it because it never occurred to me that you hadn't been an athlete for years before you got into writing for multi sport and then triathlete and, you know, writing all of these books, sort of read that it wasn't until after you were already writing for triathlete that you were jumping into a triathlon. I was completely surprised yeah. by that.
3: <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I did, you know, I was between, I quit running cold turkey. Uh, mm hmm when I was shortly before, well, right around the time I turned 18 or maybe, yeah, just a few weeks before I turned 18 and I didn't really get back into it in a serious way for, yeah, for 10 years, uh, 10, 10, 11 years. Um, but during that whole time, I, I actually, I exercised a lot, but it was almost all weightlifting. I don't really kind of go into that too much in the book, but I You know, I was always a very physical person um, and, you know, uh, I, you know, I I could lift small cars during those years, but I I couldn't (laughs) find a flight without getting winded. So it's not like I completely let myself go, but I I was, I was, I had a beer belly.
0: (laughs) I mean, you still thought you could jump into an Olympic distance triathlon like it was not going to be a problem and it seemed you survived it. So, that's more than most standard people can do, I'd say.
3: Yeah, barely survived it.
0: Yeah. Um, so was this book harder or easier to write compared to your past books?
3: Well, I mean, I guess, you know, I I sense that the reason you asked that is because I share so much stuff that one would consider deeply private, you know, um, and stuff that I guess, you know, maybe ought to be scary to share. I mean, people who read this book will find out that I once was charged for domestic battery and spent a night in jail. (laughs) Like that's if like, if if your main concern is like preserving uh, an image or reputation, like that's not, that's the kind of stuff you keep under wraps. Right. Um, but you know when you know nataki and i decided together and obviously it very much had to be a, a team decision to mm-hmm. to go forward with this this concept um i knew that the only way to do it was you know complete transparency because um, there, there, there's an instinct to you want people to like you so if you're t- telling the story of, of your life there's a huge temptation to tell it in a way that makes you look good, right? Right. But as, a, <laughs> as a writer and a, a reader, I know that that is fatal. Um, and it, it doesn't work because people can see that. And it comes off as phoniness. And also, you know, if, if you're actually trying to write a book that, or you know, tell a true story that is deeply moving to people, you have to show the worst because that's, That's what actually earns people's respect. It's a little counterintuitive when it's your skeletons that you're yanking out of the closet Mm
2: -hmm. and putting in front
3: of people. But that is how it works. When they see you just share it all, you know, reveal yourself, warts and all. And then, you know, people have to see some kind of transformation or progress as well. Um, That's what... Makes people actually like you is actually not trying to make them like you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I do, I do want people to like me, but, but that you know. So, um, so in that sense, it wasn't really hard because once that decision was made, just to to be completely open, it was so liberating because I, I had the guard was down. I, the analogy I, I gave is like when you're like standing on a cliff. Uh, and, you, and you're and going to jump into water, you know, 30 feet below or whatever, and you're afraid to do it, um, you know, once once you just let go, well, what seemed hard just becomes so easy, right? And literally mm-hmm. really, the secret is just letting go. And, and that's what I had to do as a writer,
2: mm-hmm. and kind of as a human
3: being, in order to, to write this book was let go. And, and when I let go, I let go. So then it became easy, and it actually felt really good. Um Yeah. You know, the the temptation to hold back just disappeared. And and from then on, it was, you know, easy, except that it was hard work. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about it, honestly, even for myself, like, in the context of writing, you know, a nonfiction book like Fuel Your Ride versus, like, this fictional series I have coming out. In my head, I was like, oh, fiction will be a lot easier. I have all the source material in my brain. (laughs) Like, how you'd have the source material for how your life has gone for the last however many years in your head versus having to do all of the interviews and all of the research and all of the stuff that goes into writing something like the endurance diet or in my case fuel your ride but it turns out i to me anyway the fiction where i had to kind of provide all of the source material instead of being able to be like ah, i'm just going to transcribe this interview today and get that done was a lot harder so that's that's part of how i was thinking about it
3: yeah okay yeah that's- that's an interesting point. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, because half the book really is uh, is documenting our cross-country trip.
2: Mm-hmm. So for,
3: for that, you know, I kept a blog as we went through the journey so just people could share it with us, you know, in, in real time. And mm-hmm. so that helped a lot because I was documenting stuff as we went. And so, I mean, the writing was terrible, you know, because I would just... <laughs> <laughs> you know, at the at, at the end of the day, I would just you know check into a hotel and bang it out and get it up. You know, post it, um, but at least I had the facts. You know, mean, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, it was it was hard work to make it make those facts worth reading, <laughs> but um, but it was good. You know, cause it, I mean, you can imagine that that those fifty days we were on the road were just super intense. I mean, not only did I run eight marathons, but we're covering ten thousand miles. And I'm just going nonstop, you know, trying to yeah. meet as many runners as possible and collect their, you know, really amazing stories that they had to share. Um, and also, you know, doing stuff, fun stuff with with Nataki. And yeah, it was it, was a, it was an absolute whirlwind, but, you know, the, the best 50 days of my life.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm, so on that note, I'm going to deviate from talking about a book. And I want to talk about this trip and what tips you have for another couple who'd be contemplating probably not that many weeks on the road but there are plenty of people that do pretty lengthy trips like that to do similar things what did you learn what were good ideas
3: what were bad ideas yeah i mean um i I guess one if i were going to give advice to a couple uh, one thing that told us was that uh we had Nataki and I had a clear understanding about what our priorities were for the trip. Um, and you know, unfortunately this is just how it is all too often in our marriage is that I set an agenda and then, you know, my priorities tend to dominate, but you know, it's, you know, it's not a marriage at all. If, if Nataki's priorities don't get any air, Mm -hmm. so before we left for the trip, you know, I said, you know, I'll, this trip is for mainly, you know, well, it's something we'd always wanted to do. Um, but you know, the way we chose to, to do it was I was going to be running a bunch of marathons and um, writing, writing about it. Um, so you know, those those things those were those were musts. Um, but at the same time, we also wanted to just have an amazing experience together and also do some stuff. Simply because Nataki wanted to do them, or because it was, it was fun for us to do, and mm-hmm. had nothing forever to do with running or, or writing a book, so that helped a lot, even though my agenda did dominate. we both knew and accepted that before we went. I think where couples will get into trouble is where both parties are sort of secretly hoping their agenda will dominate. Yes. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a version of the old thought that it's all about communication. Um, but, yeah. But it, it did help a lot because, you know, you know, looking back, I'm like, geez, you know, what did to get out of that? But, you know, she had a good time and she didn't complain because, she you know, she really did understand, she really did understand and, and was buying into the trip for what it was.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then, as the author of The Endurance Diet and Racing Weight, how did you manage to eat decently on the road for that long?
3: Yeah, you know, it would be fun, actually, to... I I could have just sort of written a few thousand words just about that. And and I I guess maybe in in some of the blog posts I did get into that. But it's something that Taki and I talked about and planned for before we left. Um, You know, when we we left, we had, like, sort of non-perishable or minimally perishable snacks with us in the car, you know, like, you know, healthy stuff, you know, nuts and dried fruit. And I think we had tin sardines. Didn't you have tin sardines? Yeah, she's not.
0: (laughs) Yep. Peter's obsessed (laughs) with them. He has them in the car all the time. I usually try to throw them out of the car. It's it's a bit of a never ending battle.
3: (laughs) They're they're fine if you open them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But we, uh, we, we get it. We hit a lot of supermarkets because you know, obviously, you know, for me, it's important to eat healthy. And I really didn't, it was kind of, um, actually, I did write a blog post about this before we even left. Um, but it was like, I, I wanted, I sort of embraced the, the challenge of maintaining my normal standards, you know, under difficult circumstances. Because, you know, it, when you get out into, you know, middle America, finding healthy places to eat is not easy. Um, but a lot of people use that all too readily as an excuse like all the is the only thing around i mm-hmm. i had to have a big i had no choice but to go for the extra large size.
1: yeah um, exactly so i
3: didn't <laughs> I, I didn't want to let myself off the hook in that way not that i even crave that stuff anymore i really don't um so we would hit a lot of supermarkets because you know you can always find apples you know or tin mm-hmm. sardines or whatever um and you know we we, we 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 would unfortunately if we'd done the same trip 20 years before we would have been living hand to mouth. But you know our finances are better than they were 20 years ago, so you know we could we could do some restaurant meals where you know even if you choose like you know one of the like a Chili's we can eat a few Chili's. Like you can find you know good stuff to eat on their menu. Maybe Mm -hmm. most of it isn't good, but the temptation is there. so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't super challenging. There were only a couple circumstances where I just sort of, I was hungry and lazy and the only thing around was, uh, McDonald's and I could, uh, <laughs> <well>. <laughs> as
0: long as you're acknowledging it.
3: <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, you know, I was, I ran eat marathons and I always, yeah, eat whatever after a marathon. So, you know, that, that sort of, I got my fix off of, there's you know one one such meal is actually described in in the book and it was some kind of sloppy burger um
2: mm-hmm. so you
3: know I, I had I had like eight of those meals and that was pretty much enough for the most part.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, which was your favorite of all of the the races
3: specifically the eight marathons? Uh, you know, they, yeah I mean they were they really were all incredible experiences in, in different ways um you know, if I, if I had to choose one, um, well, no, you know, I can't. I, I'm going to say it's a toss up between the, the Rock and Cay Trail Marathon in Kansas, central Kansas, and the Boston Marathon. Everyone knows Boston. And yeah. I have run it a couple times before, but it was special because I ran it with my old high school best friend who appears, you know, within the first 10 pages of the book. Mike Mike is his name, and and he and I were co-captains of the cross country team in high school. We were very evenly matched as runners, so we were, you know, buddies, but also, you know, and and leading the team together, but also competing against each other and and trading victories back and forth. But we hadn't run together, so running was a huge bond between us. I mean, our our friendship was forged through running. I met him through running, but then you know, life goes, you know, goes on and. You know, we, we don't see as much of each other anymore, and we hadn't like did the math, we hadn't to run together for 16 years mm-hmm. um, before the Boston Marathon. He was trying to break three hours, he, he had sort of gotten away from running. He always he was always into sports, but you know, he got totally away from running. And actually, just my exploit helped inspire him to just try a middle-aged comeback. And Of course, talent doesn't disappear. Mike was a 424 miler in, in high school, so he even though he was. Forty-six or whatever at the time, you know, he still had wheels,
2: mm-hmm. so it was
3: just an incredibly magical experience to uh, to run. You know, I ran every step of, of, of that that marathon, shoulder to shoulder with him, um, and it was just. I, I actually broke down with a great photo from uh, the, the, the final stretch where I broke down crying, <laughs> running the, the, in the last half mile. I, I, it, I. You know, I'm not a weeper, but it was just so powerfully nostalgic. Mm -hmm. Um, I was openly weeping and running (laughs) at the same time with thousands of people watching.
0: (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Okay, so it, like, literally just hit me how many marathons that is to do in a really short period of time. You know, when you're reading it over 250 pages, it doesn't quite occur to you that, like, not only are you doing these pretty like close together you're also driving between them how the heck did you train for all of this and how did you not die by like marathon five
3: yeah so you know <laughs> fortunately i had i had experience on my side in in, in planning this um, and though i, I as I, i'm sure you know from our prior interactions i, I am a very injury prone runner Um, I'm always I'm always I'm always breaking down like I'm not Dean Karnazes you know I'm not the guy to go run eight marathons in eight weeks Um, but I wanted to do it and during the the winter before so the trip started on I think it was March 20 or the first marathon I believe was right around the first day of spring uh, 2017 and so I was you know I was training over the winter and I was injured (laughs) um I, I was, um, uh, I was just, I was having injuries uh, issues. Uh, some of my like classic old trouble spots, like, uh, the main one was, uh, my left Achilles was just not behaving. And mm-hmm. so, but, uh, but my, my thought was, well, I don't need to do any speed work cause I wasn't planning to race the marathon. I thought if I can survive to number eight, I'll let it all hang out because I'd love to race. And, um, but you know, that was a big, if. <laughs> um, So I thought, well, I won't do any speed work, you know, that can wait. Um, I just need to be able to go the distance Uh, and I just needed to be, but also, even if I hadn't been a hundred percent or even if I had been a hundred percent healthy, I would have deliberately under trained a bit so that I could actually, I wouldn't be sort of peaking for the first one Mm -hmm. because then I would be. Overcooked, you know, well before I got to number eight. So I actually wanted to be just barely fit enough for number one and sort of get fitter as I went along to actually Mm -hmm. have some bandwidth. Um, And that's exactly what happened. It it was really kind of uh, interesting how it unfolded. You know, my body did, it, it held up really well. The Achilles was sort of always there. I had, you know, one or two other, you know, mild things crop up. But my, my very last marathon was my fastest one. It, it was you know, the only one where I, I you know I pulled out the stops and, and ran 100 um, percent. I I, I, again, I hadn't done any you know, speed work per se, uh, except for one random night in New York City with the Black Roses NYC track club. Um, but yeah, it worked out it worked out pretty well. Um, you know I was I held together and, and I, I got there.
0: Yeah. And what about with the driving? Were you doing any stretching or were you stopping every few miles? Did you have any strategy for getting through that or was that just like hard man?
3: Yeah. you know, If you think about it, um, you know, eight weeks is a, a pretty decent amount of time to circumnavigate the lower 48. You know, we weren't trying to hit every state. Um, you know, our, our eastward path didn't go too far south. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it was 10,000 miles of driving spread out over eight weeks. So we were we, we didn't have to put in a lot of like eight or nine hour days. And, and there were, uh, some days where we didn't move at all, you know, mm-hmm. we spent four days, four, four nights in Boston. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we could camp out, uh, a little bit here and there. I think we were in the state of Kansas for, you know, four, maybe five nights. Uh, so it was only, you know, I describe it in the second to last chapter. There was only one really tough fall we're between uh, marathons number seven and eight. The last one was the Eugene Marathon. And and um, and so and, uh, number seven was in rural Wisconsin. So we had to get uh, 2,000 miles from Wisconsin few oh. in three days in three days to make that work and and so that was a lot of driving in a short period of time and there was some there was some bad weather we actually got hit a snowstorm on the 1st of May for crying out loud and a nice reminder why I live in California
2: yep yep
3: and it's interesting because as I described in the book it was really that those three days of driving were tougher seemed to be tougher on my body than the eight marathons for actually oh yeah
0: well we've done the cross-country yeah. drive out to california most years for the last few and you kind of always debate with yourself whether it's worth taking a week to drive out and taking your time and stopping and doing yeah. some training or just trying to do the haul in three days the problem with the haul in three days is you get there and you need three days to recover from the drive yeah Versus taking yeah. six to get out there and be in good shape, so it actually ends up being about equal, like all things considered but right
1: yeah yeah,
0: it's it's brutal. okay, so the other thing I thought was really funny throughout the book is it seems like you've done a lot of races that had poorly marked courses. How is it that you were in so many races where <laughs> there was, there were these problems?
3: Yeah. Well, you know that was part of the planning. Is I, you know, I knew um, I knew I was going to do Boston, so I knew, you know, I knew sort of where where and when I had to be. That was like my only. Well, that and actually the Deathville Marathon was is my hometown marathon, Um so that ended up being number one. And the timing was good because obviously you know spring comes to California earlier, so. I could, you know, start, uh, you know, right at the beginning of spring here and then, you know, uh, head east on a southerly route because obviously spring comes earlier in the south, hit Mm -hmm. the marathons that were available uh, going eastward, uh, you know, below the Mason-Dixon, and then, you know, scooting north to Boston and then head back west on the northerly route. So I had sort of like, you know, a couple of points and I had like, uh, some parameters for the trip, but then I had to like get down to brass tacks and find the other six events to
2: do. Mm-hmm. And, you
3: know, they sort of, they needed to be spaced out. I wanted some variety, you know, I didn't want them all to be big or small or what what have you. Um, so I ended, I ended up with kind of a motley collection. Of, how,
0: how did you, of how did you pick them? Did you just pull up like active.com and just start searching marathons or what
3: was your strategy I, I used the marathon Okay. dot com that's my that's my favorite resource uh, for for marathons um, yeah so I just you know it, it wasn't it wasn't easy you know to to come up with a, a good list but um i you know the, yeah it, it was but it was a good list i mean you know once I'd actually done them all, I had no regrets. Um, but yeah, I'm actually, you know, it ended up that most of them were pretty small. Um, and there were only two where I actually got lost or off course. And, you know, one, it was, you know, that, that marathon in Kansas and that's just how
2: it goes, you know, um, I,
3: I, I basically knew what I was getting, getting into there and I I just showed up and ran. So it's not like I made any effort to. Minimize the chances of yeah. In that race, I mean, I, 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 when I say I got lost, or I mean I right, went off course. I went way off course. I ran over thirty miles in order to cover twenty six point two officially, <laughs> and then and the other one was you know wasn't my fault. I was just misdirected by a police officer, mm-hmm. um, and that one only added a little less than a mile, and I won that race. So so be it. It all worked it out. Worked out.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Um and throughout the book you kind of kept coming back to this thing that you talked about in the beginning which is the person I want to be. So by yeah. the end of the book it seems like you've gotten closer but I mean do you think we can ever get to this elusive person that you want to be? Like, is there an end point?
3: Oh, uh, Donald Trump is the man he wants to
0: be. That's true. Oh. Yeah. Okay, so you're a, <laughs> if you're a sociopath. Um, <laughs>
3: Yeah, but I mean, I, you know, not to get all political or anything. But I mean, my 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 point uh, is that if you have no standards, you, <laughs> you, uh, you I'm serious. If you have, if you have no standards, uh, mm-hmm. if you just assume that everything you do is good because you did it, uh, you you are the person you want to be. But to your point, point excuse me, if you do have high standards for yourself, and I think that everyone should. Um then no you, you don't in fact I, I, arguably the the surest sign that you're a good person is that you don't think you're a good person <laughs> <laughs> I like it you know, but i mean i i that I mean, that is sort of my philosophy is i I like to be hard on myself i like to hold myself to a high standard that just it feels a appropriate to me and it's not it doesn't make me miserable to fall short of the mark unless I fall way short of the mark you know what I mean or mm-hmm. I get caught in a cycle of falling short in the same way over and over then then I'll, I'll get angry at myself and uh, it makes me unhappy but by and large I just it's not that different from striving as an athlete like um mm-hmm. uh, you know I talk about in the book how basically I was never satisfied by any race performance I'd ever done, but that didn't really make me a miserable athlete. It didn't make me think I should quit or regret the whole journey. None of that, you know, it was Mm -hmm. was still fulfilling and worthwhile to be an athlete, even though I felt like I never realized my potential. And I think it's it's similar in in your character development. Um, You know, it's a journey you probably shouldn't ever feel that you've ever completed
0: yeah I think there's there's some cliche that to the effect of like you know the worst thing or yeah like the worst thing is to not get the goal that you wanted and the even worse thing is to get it
2: because'
0: right. <laughs> like what, what do I do no. now
3: <laughs> right yep
0: that's that's why I'm glad I've never you know won a world championship or anything like that, totally happy <laughs> about it <laughs> really enjoy that um so This reading this book also put into a really sharp perspective how much you've managed to write over the last 10, 15, 20 years, given all that you've done, you know, as far as your racing. And then if I think about all the articles you've added in um, on top of the huge list of books you have, um, and I mean, all of the, the personal life stuff that you talk about in the book, how the hell do you manage all of this?
3: Yeah, I I really don't know, and to, to, be, to be to be to be totally honest, like there there are just moments when I step back and think about. First of all, I mean, it's, there's there's nothing. I mean, it's, it's not. I, I don't take pride in having written a lot of stuff. I, I take pride when I feel like I've written something good, <laughs> and for sure not. You know, not everything I've written was good. So, um, but I, it, it is absolutely undeniably true that I have over the years written a tremendous amount of stuff, and 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 honestly, I I look at it from the same perspective as you, like someone who, even though I lived it myself, I have no freaking idea. <laughs> <laughs> you like read your own,
0: you're reading life as a marathon. And you're like, wow, this guy seems really busy.
3: <laughs> yeah. I uh, I don't I mean I, well I I I don't I can't really add anything to that it's just like uh I I couldn't stop and I didn't want to stop and I guess I never really got writer's block. Mm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and if you did, you could just put down one book and start working on the next, or work on the next article (laughs) that's due, or a coaching thing. I think that's the nice thing about having so many different streams that you're you're working off of, right?
3: Yeah, but yeah, I definitely I am one of these people. I mean, it's a terrible comparison, but I I remind myself of uh, (laughs) a little bit of how uh, Prince the music artist the late great prince was described mm-hmm. as just someone who had no off switch for his creativity <laughs> i uh,
2: love it i mean
3: like you know he just like you know he, that's why he built paisley park is that he just he was he played every instrument he could produce and he would come up with you know two three songs a day you know in the in the 80s and 90s he apparently slowed down in his last few years but he would just he just as soon as he finished one song all he cared about was the next song Mm -hmm. i'm I'm in no way comparing myself (laughs) talent-wise to prince but in in terms of like that sort of artistic makeup where i'm just always about the next thing like i am not one of those writers who like finishes a project and needs time off time off is just terrifying to me like i just I, I am, I am not a happy person unless I'm creating. I just, yeah, not, so. and that, that's probably maybe the, the best I can give you to your question. It's just, it's just like, it's, I need it like air. I need to write like I need air.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I definitely understand that. Um, okay, yeah. last uh, last thing here, and it's this will probably be more than a thirty second elevator pitch. Could you just kind of give uh, give listeners just like one anecdote that you particularly love from the book, like one moment that stands out, just so they know what they're getting into? Um,
3: yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the book has anecdotes of all different flavors, so you know, mm-hmm. no no one can speak for all of them, but. You know, it was really important to me in writing this book that, and actually it, it, it was a huge motivation for doing it, is that I wanted so many people who know Nataki and me as a couple, and especially those who meet Nataki through me, wonder, like, how does this work? You know, because <laughs> lovers, we, are, we are an opposite to track story. Um, we're very different people. I mean, we've been together for a long time now. Uh, speaking for myself, I'm very happy with Nataki, yeah. <laughs> but we're, you know, we're very different. And you know, and I, I just appreciate Nataki so much. And I sort of, I sort of want wanted this book to get others to see you know her as I see her. Obviously, not you know in the fullest sense, but in some sense. Mm-hmm. And so I, I didn't want this book just to, you know, be all about her illness or, you know, some of the behavior that she couldn't control in the worst moments of her illness. I wanted to show Nataki I fell in love with and that I remain in love with today. So a, a, a moment of that sort appears, I, I referred to it earlier, uh, relatively early in the book, when I took Nataki home to New Hampshire for the first time it was Thanksgiving, but my, my mother's mother was... was weeks away from passing away at the time she had colon cancer and dementia to the nursing home and i took nataki to the nursing home basically to say goodbye to my grandmother and also so that my grandmother could meet the woman who ended up being my wife um mm-hmm. and you know i'm not my family were typical sort of puritan heritage yankees were really not good with you know emotional intimacy and stuff yep <laughs> yep um <laughs> So you know, I was I was making a hash of the whole thing. You know, it's such an important interaction, but I was just kind of staying on the surface. And Nataki, just she has a drive to go deep with people. You know, she always wants to have the deepest possible conversation she can have with anyone at any time. So th- there was a moment where she just sort of broke in, interrupted, sat on my grandmother's bed, basically in a sense all but pushed me aside. So, leaned in close and, and asked my grandmother, who was white obviously, and Natagi uh, is black. Um, and I, I, I point out that I actually, at the time I grew up in New Hampshire, it was literally the whitest state in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so Natagi just you know, interrupts, leans in, and asks my grandmother point for a blank, so what do you think of your grandson being with a woman like me? <laughs> 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 and uh, I, I nearly fainted. it, I swear to God. <laughs> 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 I, I actually I won't finish the the story. I won't tell you what happens next. So you have to read the book. But uh, it, it was it, it was just it was a, a really powerful moment in my life. So I'm glad I wrote about it the next day. But I would probably remember it like it was yesterday. For
0: mm-hmm. Now and I mean that scene and the one after it just really like choked me up. Honestly, I I laughed and I cried when I read this book. So. And I don't, I don't normally laugh and cry that much when I read books. So that's, that's a pretty big, it's very emotional and it's a really, really great read. Um, so, um, I mean, are you, so first of all, I want you to tell everyone where they can find this new book. And then second of all, I have to ask because you're you, what's, what's next? What are you working on now?
3: Yeah. So, um, I guess it's available everywhere. Books are sold as as they say, you know, Google the title, Life's a Marathon, you'll find it. Um, if you want to just start with my website, that'll work because it's all over the homepage now. <clears throat> and that's mm-hmm. Matt Um And, you know, I've been working hard, so this is, 2017 was an incredible year. Um, so weeks after Natasha uh, and I got home from the cross-country trip, uh, we picked up stakes again and relocated to Flagstaff arizona for the summer where i spent 13 weeks training with the uh coca and the elite professional running team uh as a kind of experiment and also something to, to write about i'm having the darndest time getting a publisher for that book the the working title is the running bum uh, but i've been working on it though know, ever since and it's, it's pretty far along but i, I can't offer uh uh, an available when date yet because nobody wants to find it
0: <laughs> well if you need a pre-reader you you know i'm i'm just waiting for the next book now so putting it out there all right <laughs> awesome well thank you so much matt as usual it's super fun chatting with you and yeah everyone should definitely read this book i loved it
3: thanks so much
0: thanks so much for tuning into the consummate athlete podcast Uh, You can check out my stuff over at theoutdooredit.com or by following me on Instagram and Twitter at Molly J. Hereford. And you can check out Peter's coaching, training plans, blogs, all that fun stuff over at smartathlete.ca or by following him on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Glassford. And if you want to support this show and other awesome podcasts, please check out wideanglepodium.com for show info, other podcasts, bonus content and to become a donating member so you can get all of that rad behind the scenes content and help keep shows like this on the air. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast and all the information that we're bringing to you every single week, uh, do us a solid and pop into iTunes to leave us a rating and review. It takes you about two seconds. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your phone and it really helps us out. Thanks so much. And we will see you next week.